Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 2nd of August, and I'm Anthony Day. A few weeks back, back when uh, Theresa May was still Prime Minister, I had a roundtable discussion with three patrons of the Sustainable Futures Report. This turns out to be one of the longest episodes to date, but I hope you find it interesting. We'll probably hold another discussion in September. And if you'd like to take part, please contact me via patreon.com slash sfr that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr we started off with introductions so tom who are you <laughs> um so i'm tom um i live in york um and i um, i'm a web developer um so i make websites for a living um, um but i also work in my spare time with york community energy currently we are focusing less on generating energy and more on saving energy, so trying to insulate people's homes, basically. Okay, and your interest in the whole climate change issue is what? <laughs> um, well, I, you know, would like the planet to not fall apart and, you know, not have food shortages and terrible droughts and floodings and, and things like that, really. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Right, fair enough. I think we probably agree with that. Um, Catherine, can we ask you to introduce yourself, please? Sure. I'm Catherine Wheatman. My company um, is Rethink Global. So there are a couple of us helping small businesses mainly, but small businesses and community groups understand the circular economy and work out how it can help strengthen their businesses, make it more profitable, resilient and sustainable. And Amanda, Amanda Scott. I'm Amanda Scott. I used to be a veterinary surgeon, now I'm a novelist, although we just moved house, so writing has taken the back seat. Two years ago, I did the Master's in Sustainable Economics at Schumacher, which completely changed my view of the world. And shortly after that, I read the Deep Adaptation paper, which further completely rewired my view of the world. So I'm active in our local Extinction Rebellion group, I'm trying very hard to get regenerative farming to take off in my area. I live in Shropshire, which is a big rural farming area, because I genuinely believe that regenerative farming can be part of the solution. Um, and I'm quite active in politics on the, on the basis that if we don't get our politics to change, we're not going to change in, in time. I think the timescales, we were talking about tipping points earlier, I don't think the general public has any clue of the timescales. I think there's still a sense that this is something that will happen in our childhood, children's you know, old age, not that it's happening now. We need to change that. Okay, well, let's start off um, and ask this question. Um, are we reaching the tipping point? Have we actually got to the point where public opinion is on a roll and will that change things? Will that change behaviour? Um, do you want to start with that, Catherine? Sure. Um, it feels to me as if we are reaching a tipping point. I'm certainly noticing a lot more conversation on the news, uh, on TV, in newspapers and so on, not just about the problem, but about some of the responses and solutions that people are coming up with. So I think it's starting to swing around 
to um, you know more not not a vision yet. Well, that would be good, but more of um, uh, you know how we how we could live more sustainable lives. And I think particularly the report that came out a week or so ago about the importance of planting trees and the new calculations on just how much difference that could make has started to perhaps make people feel that you know it doesn't require technological wizardry it doesn't require a miracle there are simple things that we could all get behind that would start to head us in the right direction Um, and I think the other thing that's encouraging is the number of businesses and pension funds and so on really starting starting to talk about what they need to do differently and actually businesses canvassing the government and asking for policy changes that you know, support the right behaviour, like taxing carbon, taxing the use of virgin resources instead of labour, that kind of thing. What's your feeling, Amanda? Are you noticing um, a change? Do you think we're getting to a tipping point? Do you think we're finally seeing a difference? I, in some ways, yes. Certainly in my teaching, I'm finding that students are coming with much bigger questions about how do we fix this rather than how do I find a better job? I, I teach shamanic dreaming, so people tend to come with personal questions and now they're coming more with existential questions. We set up a local extinction rebellion group last week and we had 70 people at the first meeting, which for a small town in South Shropshire was, was very good. But that said, I you know talk to people in the supermarket queue or other people in the village, kind of people who are not activists and they still look at me as if I'm talking gibberish and they really don't know. I mean, they've kind of got the plastic thing that's got through. And they at least, I suppose at least they are aware that climate change is a thing. But in terms of changing their behaviour, not yet. But I think, I think what's happened is that the commentariat is beginning to take notice. And it's becoming something that's more remarked upon in newspapers other than just The Guardian. And on television, it's it's not just the lone voice in the wilderness. And they're not so busy feeling that they have to get somebody from the denialist movement mm-hmm. to balance out every single statement on climate change in the way that they used to. So we're heading in the right direction. Whether it's fast enough is entirely another question. And whether the incredibly slow pace of change that happens in our political structures will move fast enough to make a difference is also another question. And, uh, but I hope so. You know, Extinction Rebellion is putting a lot of pressure on. And if we can continue to ramp up the pressure, then with any luck, we can get the change we need in the timescale that we need. Okay, I think we generally accept that government, of course, um, has the power. And that, um, well, government and business has the power to do things, while the consumer and the citizen may believe that things should be done. Uh, It's only the... uh, institutions which can actually make it happen now you're a lot closer to business Catherine than maybe we are um uh, through your work with the circular economy and so on are you seeing a change in attitude within business yeah definitely I think big businesses are starting to realize that it's not just about um you know some green messages and things that will hopefully um persuade people that they're um doing the right thing but I think businesses are starting to realize that their own futures are at risk and IKEA put out a really good short video this week 
I think somebody shared it on LinkedIn. Mike Berry actually shared it on LinkedIn. Um, and they talked about reshaping their business so that they they can meet the needs of future customers. I think they're starting to realise that resource security is, you know, is a big issue. If we all want more stuff and population keeps growing, then we've got to find different ways to create that that um, that stuff, if you like, the, the resources in the first place. And so having things that last longer can help that. Recycling things can help that, but it's an expensive way to do it. Um, and starting to change people's mindsets away from owning stuff to using it and having access to it can not only help spread resources you know, across more people, but can be a brilliant business model for businesses. Um, I think even Apple is starting to realise that its planned obsolescence approach is a bit broken. Mm-hmm. And so they're starting to invest more in subscription services and software. Um, and they've also committed to a circular future, though with no dates. But it's entirely feasible that Apple could develop a Fairphone-type phone that's upgradable, um, that's you know more easily repairable, and something that people engage with and just upgrade as thing you know new things become available a faster processor a better camera lens whatever you can just swap that in and then apple aren't risking somebody thinking well actually you know the samsung one does exactly the same and it's half the price so why don't a swap mm-hmm. it's better to keep your customers engaged and i think companies are really starting to see the value of that engagement which means you can talk directly to the customer instead of having to try and attract new customers through, you know, Google ads or whatever it is that's not very measurable and not very precise um, and extremely expensive. Okay. Um, You mentioned the deep adaptation paper there. Uh, I'm about a tenth of the way through it. I haven't really got it. Yeah, 36 pages. Yes, well, right. I think quite closely uh, written pages. Um, uh, the, the author, uh, Jan Bendel, appears to be a fatalist, or what I would call a catastrophist, uh, who says, right, it's all going to go wrong. Um, so No, 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 he said it's all going to go wrong if we don't act now. Ah, oh, that's, well, that's a much more optimistic um, reading than I've heard. So, okay, but he talks... The of it was, we need to act or it will all go wrong. Okay. He talks particularly about social breakdown, and I think um, uh, Tom and, and Catherine are both talking about um, whether, in fact, consumers can recognise that things have to be done and accept the things, the changes, which are going to have to be made in the relatively short term. So what's his take on What's your take on that? Me? Mm. Um, well, Extinction Rebellion grew out of the Deep Adaptation paper. So my, uh, they, they convened some gatherings in Devon and, and the early stages of deep adaptation, of, of Extinction Rebellion grew out of that. And I think, so that would be my take on it, is that we need to follow this line of non-violent direct action because it's the only thing that makes governments pay attention. Because otherwise I think we, I think we risk putting all of the Emphasis on what we can do as individual consumers. You know, we stop using plastic straws or we recycle our plastic better or we stop taking flights. When actually what needs to happen is that the plastics industry needs to cease to exist and planes need to cease to fly. 
And if we take what I would always call the Al Gore view of things, which is it's down to each of us as individuals, then we're sunk. Which isn't to say that as individuals we can't make a huge amount of change, but probably for me, most of the change we can see is in our immediate social groupings, in our connected local areas, and in really obvious big direct action that makes the government sit up and take notice. And you know, the Extinction Rebellion has worked so far. We've got a government that a year ago didn't even know what a citizens' assembly was agreeing to set one up. It doesn't mean they will do it, and it doesn't mean they'll listen to it, but at least if we know they're thinking about it. Yes, yes, okay. Tom, can you envisage a world where people accept that they can no longer fly? <laughs> um, I don't know. Where are you going to your holidays? Uh, we're going to Bristol. <laughs> and yeah. we're, not, we're not flying to Bristol. Um yeah it's a very tricky question and it's something that i've been thinking about a lot and been thinking about you know how are people going to feel about you know not having cars and things like that um i mean you know the 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 easy answer is what other choice do we have (laughs) if you know Uh at the end of the day it's it's that or death essentially so um I think it's one of those things where, you know, as people come to realize the urgency of the situation, then they might start to reevaluate it. It's just, and the thing that I don't have the answer to is, will they realize in time? Yeah. Okay. Catherine, can you uh, envisage the plastics industry closing down, or do you think that the circular economy will actually uh, stop that from needing to happen? Yeah, can I come back to plastics in a sec and just chip in on the yeah. planes thing? Because I, um, um, Dr. Wayne Visser, who you might have heard of, he posted something on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about, um, you know, should we all stop flying? Um, and um, his view was that as it was only 2% of carbon emissions, um, it was a bit of a futile gesture. So um, it engendered quite a bit of debate. And I... Um, chipped in with my view that those of us working in sustainability should be the ones saying we're not going to fly because if we're not prepared to do it how do we convince other people to even think about it um and as you can imagine so i wasn't saying nobody should fly i was just saying you know this is my view i haven't flown on holiday for over 10 years um and i've now stopped flying for business um so last you know last week holland um, took Eurostar I've turned down speaking invitations to Cape Town and Australia in the last couple of weeks because um, you know I couldn't see the point of, of flying said I'd do a web conference um, but I think lots of people are still you know that's the point of having something taken away from you so there was a, there was a lot of um, you know quite strong the usual kind of Twitter stroke LinkedIn debate with people saying Um, You know, you can't stop people going on holiday and all that kind of stuff. But my view is the more of us who choose not to fly, the more pressure that puts on the airline industry to find a clean fuel, if there is a, you know, a clean fuel. If we all carry on and say it's up to them to do it, but we're not signalling that with our pound vote, then why will they hurry up and do it? The more, you know, the more they feel at threat of losing their business, the quicker they'll do something about it. 
And in terms of plastics, um, I've written a few blog posts on this and, um, you know, plastics are a fantastic invention. They're in everything around us. We're probably all, um, you know, surrounded by plastics. I'm looking at the furniture in some of, in some of those webcam shops <laughs> and, and um, you know, polyester fabrics and, and um, all the plastic packaging that helps keep things fresh. So if we banned plastic, that would be a retrograde step. But I don't see why any company should be allowed to put plastic into the market that isn't recycle, recyclable. I think there are enough options um, that, you know, everything should be able to be recycled. We don't really need laminate crisp packets. They could just be a single film. And if you are going to put something complicated in, you need to pay for the cost of that being recycled. And in the UK, the packaging waste levy only covers 10% of the cost of local councils doing the recycling. So we're not giving anybody a fighting chance of putting good recycling systems in place. Um, but I do think, I think we need to rethink it and we need to put the, um, the costs where the, you know, where, where the causes of the costs are. Um, you know, people shouldn't be able to just make society pay for something that's an advantage to their business, but a, a penalty for everybody else. Mm. Well, I don't know whether you saw the BBC's war on plastic programmes recently, but uh, Michael Gove, who's currently the Environment Secretary, uh, was asked that very point about uh, why does the producer pay only 10% of the cost of recycling, and he said his plan was to make it 100%. Now, whether he'll be in office long enough to actually do that is another question, but... Um, well, it's going to be like plastic purely ban them in 2040 because, you know, we're planning to do it by 2040. It's not soon enough. And I was smiling a bit when you're talking about flying. I've just been watching the um, prime ministerial debate. Um, that makes it sound far more important than it is. But anyway, um, and Jeremy Hunt said, yes, without question, he would support the third runway at Heathrow. So we've got a long way to go, I think, to persuade our politicians. Amanda, do you fly? I haven't flown since 1996, exactly for this reason, until this year when um, I, I did a huge, uh, this is going to be too long, I, my shamanic work appeared to require me to be teaching in America and I thought there's no way because I don't fly. And two days after I had that particular event, I was invited to go to America, so I went with great regret. And I have to say, I will never do it again. Flying was such an unpleasant experience that it was quite enough to put me off. But I, I didn't think it was justified in the first place, and I think I was right. I still don't fully understand why it was necessary for me to go. Um, so no, I don't fly. But I have family members. One of the things that worries me a little about the whole recycling plastics, I have members of the extended family who are fanatical about recycling plastic, down to, you know, the, the, the toothpicks, but still fly on holidays three times a year. And, and the, the, it's giving people something to, that they can funnel their care into, but still then having the blinkers about the rest. We need somehow to have a coherent narrative that explains why that doesn't work. And I have to say, I'm not wholly convinced that recycling plastics are they, are they actually recycled still, or do they get shipped out to China where they throw them in the embassy? It's, I want to know what's actually happening to the recycling and whether it's actually worth, whether the embodied energy, whether the carbon required to do it is, is useful, because otherwise 
we need to stop. We need to be, it's not beyond the wish of humanity to produce things that function in the way that plastics function and don't have a lifespan of 10,000 years. Right. I, I think the, um, the key to it, though, is, is charging the right amount for the recycling because that would then persuade producers to use less plastic, simple plastic, you know, naked packaging, all the rest of it, to avoid the penalty. Um, mm. And then, but recycling is much more effective than, you know, continuing to make um, plastics from petrochemicals. And bio um, materials are not the answer either, because, you know, as you probably know, we have enough pressure on land as it is without trying to grow materials to make bio-based plastics. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, there are lots of issues, but I, I think it's just this, this thing of not allowing companies to externalise costs, and that goes for food as well as for, um, you know, carbon and that kind of thing. You know, we're, we're allowing companies to get away with selling us rubbish that makes us, um, you know, fat, ill, have cancer, all the rest of it, and society has to pick up the cost. Mm. But, you know, there's a lot of um, broken elements to the, the system that we're living in. Right. It's interesting what you were saying about uh, bioplastics, because I went to a lecture on that this week, or perhaps it was last week, but um, they were making bioplastics out of food waste, in other words, out of mm. sugarcane, what's left after uh, the sugar's been taken out, out of coffee grounds um, and out of other things like that. One interesting point, though, was that the plastics they were making weren't necessarily recyclable. Mm. So, um, but were they biodegradable? Uh, well, some, but not all. And, of mm. course, they made the point that if you put biodegradable plastics in the waste stream and other plastics, you can contaminate it and you can foul up the reprocessing or the recycling process mm. of those yeah. plastics. So we, we need to sort it all out. And I, I think, as you were saying, Catherine, we need to um, um, uh, control the use of plastics that are being put onto the market it's, it's the circular economy principle, isn't it? At the design stage, you've got to think of what's going to happen to the product when it's actually finished with. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you end up with a mass of rubbish, which is what we've got at the moment. Yeah. I think also, sorry, can I just add? Um, I think also we've just got to generally move away from a kind of, you know, takeaway single-use culture in general. Um, like we went um, to uh, Temple Newsom this weekend and, you know, with our lunch that we bought, they threw in a load of wooden knives and forks. And it's like, well, you know, it's still waste. It's still going to be used once and then thrown away. You know, <laughs> we're just generating all this waste, whether it's plastic or not. It's it's the whole attitude that, that needs to shift, really. Yeah. Yeah. So in uh, as well as our uh, reusable cups, we should be taking our reusable knives and forks, shouldn't we, when we go out, perhaps? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a Guardian study a few weeks ago. Eleven billion items of packaging waste a year generated by our lunch on the go habit in the UK. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, how are we going to get the, the message forward? Um, Tom, are you involved in any way in Extinction Rebellion? Do you approve of it? Do you support it? <laughs> um I'm not actively involved in it um i did go to their citizens assembly in york a couple of weeks ago right. which was excellent actually um i thought they did an amazing job um and you know sort of they were able to sort of you know conduct a democratic exercise which was 
reasonably represented. I think they said there was like 300 people there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they did it and managed to sort of herd cats effectively. There were lots of, you know, people with strong opinions all trying to speak and they, they managed that really well. I thought the whole thing was amazing and moved at lightning speed compared to, you know, government or local government. Mm. Um, I, I, yes, I, I approve of what they're doing. Um, I, I think like, like we said before, you know, they are getting the message through in a way that other people have failed to do. And, you know, if they ruffle a few feathers, then so be it. At the end of the day, some feathers need ruffling because we've tried being polite for decades and it hasn't worked. So, and, you know, the, the fact that they, you know, explicitly commit to being nonviolent um, is absolutely crucial because, you know, some people might say, oh, well, you know, that, what, what, when are they going to turn around and, you know, become violent? And it's, you know, it's, it's written in from the start that that is not what this is about. I think that's incredibly important. It's, and you know, all the protests in London were so good natured and everyone looked like they were just having a big party and it was really good fun. Um, you know what I mean? There's a bit of positivity there and they're getting the message across. And so, yeah, that's given me more hope than anything in a, in a long time. Good. Well, you may know that they're planning to paralyse Leeds and uh, several other cities next week. <laughs> well, let's hope everybody retains their equanimity and uh, good spirits. But uh, yeah. So, th th actually, they had three demands, didn't they? One was to um, get the government to do something about it, and the government has actually said that it's going to reduce the... Um, the target for 2050 from 80% to 100%, if you see what I mean. Um, they've asked about a citizens' assembly, and the government has said there's going to be a citizens' assembly. Uh, the other thing they want is to uh, decarbonise by 2025. That's a challenge, but maybe they'll continue to push for that, but that, that is a challenge. Um, it's a net zero, though, which isn't the same as, you know, net zero isn't mm. the same as stopping all output. I think that's no, quite you're right. You're right. And um, uh, yes, and, the and calculations of net zero have got to be scrutinised very carefully because, you know, you can write calculations which say that Drax Power Station is clean. Yeah, yeah. I don't true. think a lot of people would really believe that. Also, I think, so, so and it may be that one of your listeners can answer this. My understanding is that military output of CO2 and use of you know, embodied energy is not in anybody's calculations in any country of the world. And if it's not, then we can do all we like as the civilians and, and you know, all they have to do is send a couple of hundred jets on training missions and, and we've blown you know, everybody's carbon budget for the year. It's probably and a secret. It's probably a military secret. Yeah. It probably is. And that doesn't stop it being incredibly damaging and really important that we begin to yeah. yeah, yeah, that's something else to consider. So um, I came across a couple of websites, which I shall mention in the podcast this week. Um, one's called Climate Optimism, and the other one is called something very similar to that. And I think we do need a bit of optimism. Uh, it's always a, a balance. It's a balance between scaring people to death to the extent they think, well, it can't be that bad, it won't happen, I don't want to know, and telling people, well, you know, we can do something and it's under control and they think, well, I don't have to bother because it's under control. Um, I think we tend to err on the catastrophe side and so therefore if you can actually talk positively and optimistically about the progress to uh, climate mitigation, uh, 
then it's it's going to be easier to get the message across. Hmm. Any thoughts on that? I was just reading um, a post on LinkedIn from, um, I think it was somebody who'd organised a, um, a conference of investment companies, pension, you know, pension funds and that kind of thing. And he was talking about the curse of gradualism um, hmm. and, um, you know, that doing things gradually isn't going to get us where we need to be in 12 years' time. Um, and they'd focus the whole conference around this and, and trying to get people to think about what they could all do in their in their roles. And they'd concluded that a collective voice was much stronger than um, just, you know, individual companies and so on. So they'd done a, a group letter. Um, and I think that can be quite powerful from a company point of view. But I think going back to Amanda's point, um, you know, people do feel hopeless and are focused on the things that they can do that are this week and more visible. So the, you know, plastics recycling and cutting down on plastic, what you're buying in plastic, that kind of thing. But Amanda's also right that that's not enough. So I think perhaps more awareness of what your typical carbon footprint looks like. And if we know that flying, driving and eating meat are the main causes, breaking that down a bit so that people can start to see that well, actually, you know, the in the UK, say the average person takes, I don't know what it is, one long haul, one short haul flight, that might be the average. So why not do your long haul once every three years um, and your short haul once every other year and then do staycation? So instead of making it, and I know that's not enough, but that would start to get people thinking differently. And once people start taking staycations and just considering different choices, then I think it becomes easier to take the next step. You know, once you've had a good holiday in the UK, you might think, well, let's do this again next year. Let's not fly because actually we felt quite good about not um, having those, whatever it was, three tons, four tons of carbon. Um, and the same thing with meat, you know, how little meat do you have to have to considerably reduce the carbon footprint? And what about eating grass-fed meat instead of, you know, so you know where it's coming from instead of it, you know, you just buy it from the supermarket and it could have come from Brazil and been raised on a feedlot and caused deforestation because of its um, uh, soy consumption and all the rest of it, then having local pasture-fed meat, that kind of thing. So giving, giving people um, a bit more information and an idea of what would be a better choice instead of just it just being, um, you know, wear a hair shirt, you can't have anything, your life's going to be miserable, who's going to buy that? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yes, incidentally, I read somewhere that if we actually gave up livestock and we ate all the food ourselves, we could uh, support a population 50% greater than it is already. No, 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 really. We have to to get on top of this. If we don't change farming methods and you decide that everyone's going to be a vegan, you're going to have a series of monocultures which will destroy our biosphere faster than we are currently destroying it, if you think that you're going to support a bigger population. We have to move away from monocultures back to polycultures, or climate change is not going to be the biggest of the problems that we face. The crashing biodiversity is going to crash even faster than it's crashing at the moment, which is why pasture-fed beef, particularly regenerative farming is my thing and I will endeavour not to go on about it too much but the whole movement is moving towards sequestering carbon 
and increasing biodiversity. And we need pasture animals to do this. And if we all move on to veganism and we're growing carrots in great big monocultures, then we can forget it. It's not the answer. Well, that's really interesting. And that's something I'd like to explore in more detail. We've got six minutes left. But really, it's wants to say something as well. Yeah, Amanda, just to clarify. So are you saying um, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not so important to fixate on whether you're going to give up meat or be vegan? It's more about not having processed food and having, you know, choosing things that are locally grown, regeneratively grown and so on. And then it wouldn't matter if, you know, a fair number of the, of the population decided to go vegan um, because you wouldn't be buying this kind of, um, you know, mass-produced. How how many grains is it that we? It's like six plants, isn't it, that, that comprise eighty percent of our diet. So it's yes. more important to have stuff that's local and a and a wide variety of of um, plants, legumes, pasture-fed meat, whatever it is. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we're coming close to a winding up point now because it's. Uh... I haven't heard from Tom recently. I'm aware he's gone very quiet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. yeah, There's lots of interesting points being raised by the rest of you. So. Yes. Well, have you any thoughts that we haven't covered or anything you'd like to add? Because um, uh, we have left you in the corner there because you've got a blank screen if you get you there. <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's such a huge topic, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the thing, the, the sort of the area that I'm trying to focus on, I guess, is energy um and you know <laughs> there's a huge task there and if, if we if we don't deal with our energy production then you know it, it's 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 just not going to work basically um and we've, we've you know we've <laughs> I, I just despair when i hear about you know these oil and gas companies are continuing to explore for new resources and it's just i just i just find it incredible you know at a time when we just we just need to stop burning fossil fuels altogether and you know start this this huge rapid transition to renewables how can they still be talking about looking for new reserves never mind using up the ones that, that they already know about so Yes, and there are plans to open a new coal mine in Cumbria, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. Supporting it. Yes. Is it called cognitive dissonance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I, I just think it's so much of this... Party donations. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. And so much of this is driven by money, obviously. Yes. Um, and, and, again, coming back to, you know, the, um, the, the, the flights and all that business... Um, and the you know and the fact that the companies aren't really paying for the recycling you know there's there's all these there's all these things you know if if flights actually if the price of flights reflected the true cost you know let's let's actually make people pay the tax on the fuel for a start mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, and you know and then you know look at the other costs associated with it you know because we talk about a you know a free market and the free market will will resolve everything but then, you know, fossil fuels are being subsidised left, right and centre while the subsidies are being cut for solar and wind and things like that. So yes. it's not a fair fight yes. and it's not just being left to market forces. There are people intervening in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Catherine, anything you'd like to uh, sum up with? 
Um, no, it, it would be great to hear more on your podcast, sort of aimed at the, um, you know, the average person, average citizen. Um, you know, where where do you start and how do you find helpful resources that, you know, you can kind of um, share with your family that aren't going to naff off the um, <laughs> the people who are thinking, but I like my um, family holiday every year. You know, speaking as, as someone who has... Um, intelligent friends and family um, who just don't get the no flying bit either. Um, mm. It would be it would be good to be able to point people at ways to kind of calculate what the footprint is and and um, you know what what are the main things you can do as a person to um, cut it down. I know you featured somebody a while ago, but I think the number one thing was don't have kids, and that might already be too late for lots of people. So. And that's, that's a very controversial study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of double counting of things in that. Um, you talk about helpful, helpful resources for the average person. Uh, there's a lady on LinkedIn called Zoe Cohen. I don't know whether you've come across her, but she's done a very interesting article, I think 10 points on how to be a, well, I don't know, climately responsible, but it's a very well-written article. So have a look for that. Uh, Amanda, where do we go from here? Um, well, just to answer Catherine, I just put into our chat on the Zoom, uh, there's a book called There Is No Planet B by Mike Berners-Lee, who's the brother of the guy who invented yeah. the Indian. Um, and it, it's kind of the antidote to uninhabitable Earth because he goes through, system by system, what's wrong and what we can do personally, what we can do to ask our councils to do and what the government can do and what needs international action. It's incredibly useful and really nicely written and he's obviously got a brain the size of a planet and we could get him on the podcast it would be really interesting um, yes. I, I think that we need massive structural change of the economy I think Tom was right that money is pushing us in the wrong direction capital is pushing us in the wrong direction we need fundamental structural change but we won't get that until enough people realise that we need it that we can create the political change that we need um, but I think economic, the kind of modern economics and the ways people like Kate Rayworth are looking at how we could shift the economy in a way that doesn't necessarily leave everybody destitute or leave us in societal breakdown, but changes from a system where you know, we have growth, whether or not people flourish, to a system where people flourish and the planet flourishes, whether or not we have growth. Um, so I think that's immensely important. Um, and then, you know, I think... Something that Paul Mason said a long time ago is pick one thing and become really, really expert at it so that you can talk with authority and with intelligence in a way that uses the kind of emotional intelligence that Extinction Rebellion is bringing. We need to kind of raise the level of our interactions to the point where we're not fighting amygdala to amygdala, midbrain to midbrain, where we're actually having some kind of open-hearted, compassionate discussion amongst ourselves away from the tribalism that has marked pretty much all of our evolution. So it, it will be hard, but I think we have to do it. And I think if we don't do it now, then I think deep adaptation is on its way. So I would like to believe it's still possible. Mm. Yes. Well, let's hope the Brexiteers will see reason on climate change if they won't be uh, open to discussions of uh, other political points. Yeah. Oh. This has been fun. Let's do it again. 
Thank you all very much. I think that's been very useful. It's been very interesting. And uh, as I said, I'd like to uh, publish it as an audio uh, tape um, on an episode um, very soon. And uh, I think I'd like to come back to you individually and, and perhaps take up some of the points that you've um, uh, brought up and develop them as well. In fact, as Tom said, it's a big area. It's very complicated. I think I've got 10 topics in this week's podcast. There were only one in last week's, but there were 10 in the one in the week before. And I'm still cutting things out and saying that'll have to go in next week. And I'm, oh, there is just so much. But anyway, thank you for your contribution. It's so important and it's so useful. Thank you. Thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you for Well done. Okay. Let's go and shut up the chickens now. And there we left it. Thanks for listening. And we'd really like your feedback. Please, let's have your ideas either via Patreon or mail at anthony-day.com. That was the Sustainable Futures Report for the 2nd of August. And yes, I know it's August but there'll be another one next week and I've got plans for another one the week after. There may not be one the week after that, but that'll give you time to catch up. Have a great weekend. Have a great holiday if you're having one and please don't fly too far. I'm Anthony Day and that's it for now. Music